Namaste and good evening to all of you. Today in our satsang, I'm going to continue with, uh, after a long time, after one year almost, I'm going to continue with the comments, the commentaries, the yogic explanations on the Gospel of Luke. It is my firm intention to finish <coughs> the analysis of the Gospel of Luke from a yogic and tantric standpoint, from a metaphysical standpoint. It is our interest since Jesus is the major, the major spiritual teacher that he is. It is our interest to see how that concords, how that fits with the things from yoga, tantra, and generally oriental metaphysics, how these things have been expressed in the formidable teachings of one like Jesus. And as far as I could uh, unravel, I could remember the very last lecture which um, I made about the Gospel of Luke was uh, finishing somewhere in the middle of the chapter number 16, Luke chapter 16, where Jesus was giving a parable, a very convoluted, difficult parable, the so-called parable of the shrewd manager, where he was showing some of the relationships between the human being and God, between the spiritual practitioner and God, in the understanding, in this comparison with a shrewd manager. And being there, at the, having thus commented the first 17 verses from this chapter, now I'm going to continue where Jesus is giving a few additional teachings. It's like he has later, in the same chapter, a parable where he compares Lazarus with a rich man as both die and what is the outcome of their lives and so on. But in between, in between this parable of the shrewd manager that was before and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus which comes later, there are three verses which contain disparate teachings, separate teachings, which are like maybe they were uttered by Jesus during the same discourse. Maybe they were uttered at some other time, at some other occasion, and then they were put there because they didn't know where to insert them. I would like to remind to you that Luke was a medical doctor and he was the friend, the companion of the Apostle Paul. And Paul became converted to Christianity sometime after Jesus passed away. So Paul never personally met Jesus, never participated to any of these events. He was told by Peter and the other apostles most of the stories. And then as he walked together with Luke through Greece and through the Roman Empire, he probably and the generally the Christian community exchanged stories of what had happened. And then the following stories, the following three verses, they reflect some of the things. Jesus once said like this, but it was 
not clear if it was in the day or at the time where he dealt with the ten men that had leprosy, or if it was at the time when he said the parable with Lazarus or other things. So there must have been a little bit of chaos into creating that timeline exactly, especially from one like Luke. Remember that Matthew was one of the apostles who was with Jesus more or less from the beginning. But in the case of Luke, he is telling the stories third person or fourth, fourth hand, you know, as he heard someone saying, who heard someone saying, and that's why here we are not claiming anything special in terms of timeline. After the story of the shrewd, the parable of the shrewd manager, which defines some ways in which people relate to God and which uh, ends with a very alarming statement, which says what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight, which shows that things are upside down in radical spirituality. People are always shocked by fundamentalists, fundamentalistic Islamics or Christians or Jews or Buddhists or whatever they are, they think in very provocative ways, uh, almost like they are unacceptable by the regular society. That's the reason. The reason is that sometimes in a radical, uncompromising spirituality, some things are exactly the opposite of what they are in the regular society, where there is a lot of compromise, there's a lot of weakness, there's a lot of blindness and ignorance. There are a lot of things which are accepted up till a certain point. And these additional teachings, these three verses, suddenly they quote Jesus as saying, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So first of all, when he says about the prophets, the law and the prophets, that is the old Jewish religion. The Jewish religion with its laws from Moses, the Ten Commandments, and all the things which came afterwards, and the prophets. And he simply says there was a timeline, and then it moved to the next step, the next step being he himself. He himself, Jesus, was the next step. But he says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Who was John? John the Baptist was his cousin who was born just six months before Jesus. John, St. John is celebrated in the summertime, usually around the summer solstice, around 20-something of June, and Jesus is celebrated 25th of December, which means on the winter solstice, six months later. So John the Baptist, who is an important landmark, John the Baptist is the turning point because John the Baptist said, now the Messiah has come and he designated Jesus as being this Messiah. 
And therefore, he says, there was the Jewish religion time where the perspective of a Messiah, the perspective of a new covenant with God, was abstract. You know, like we said, we could say there will come a great Messiah. No. But when? This year, in a hundred years, in a thousand years, it's very difficult to say these things before they actually happen. And therefore, he says, the law of Moses and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, since the time of John, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, which means the message of Jesus. Jesus came and he said, enough of all this discipline and the law and the message of the prophets. Now the time of the kingdom of God has come and I am the herald of that, I, Jesus, the Messiah. So John is the turning point and from there, there is the new times, the new covenant is being given and everyone is forcing his way into it. Here he makes an allusion, probably Luke heard this story incompletely, because again, in those times, people would just render verbally uh, these things from one to another, and a lot of statements, if three words were being changed, then the message became completely different. So it's, that's why it's very difficult to put some of these things exactly, exactly where they were. But basically, when he says that everybody is forcing his way into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of heaven, it is a strange statement. At some point, he made this statement that the kingdom of God has to be taken by force, in the meaning that the human being does not just have to be passive and wait. Oh, wait, there is an almighty God. He's going to do what I do. I'm a nice person. I stay here and I wait and I probably get the kingdom of heaven. No. Jesus requires extra, as in the famous parable of the talents of the shekels or whatever currency, the nari, whatever they were using in those times. No, it's, it's called something else in the Bible. I'll, I'll get there because it's coming soon in the rendering of Luke. But other evangelists, they quoted and I commented on that parable in my other comments on the Gospels of Matthew and Mark many, many years ago. And um, therefore, there we can see the same thing, that God is not pleased that he gave 10 shekels to his servant, and the servant gave him back the 10 shekels. He wanted the servant to multiply it, to increase it. And uh, it's like, it's a, it's a parable to evolution. That if you are born with 50 units of evolution, if in the end of this life you give back and you say, God, I gave you back the 50 units of evolution, it means you did not evolve in this life. It means stagnancy. And stagnancy, stagnation is not accepted. Divine, the divine consciousness does not accept the fact that you do not evolve. Oh, I had a life which was like a break. And uh, more I will do next life. No, it, it's bad. To be on zero progress is bad. There has to be at least one unit of progress, at least something. And for that unit of progress, you have to get out of your comfort zone. 
You have to make some efforts. You have to be subjected to some spiritual tests. You have to kind of push your way into acquiring at least 1%, at least something more. And because of that, uh, Jesus at some point defines that the relationship is that you have to exert force. You have to exert, you have to push. And here he says that the kingdom of God is preached from John on and by him and his apostles, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Like people make spiritual efforts in the direction of the new target. Jesus gave to the world a new target. He updated the deal with God, and therefore he gave to the world a new target, which most often is called the kingdom of God. And this kingdom of God, he says many people are forcing their way into it. That means there are people who already do efforts in that direction. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So he doesn't say that he changes the law. And this statement is very, very profound because it basically says one thing which many, many modern people hate hearing. This one. He says that you cannot change the law. Many people say, "Eh, we are not at the time of Jesus. Times have changed. Even if the times have changed, the principles of God have not changed, not a bit, not at all. So if there is not a second Jesus to come and change the law from the first Jesus and say the first Jesus came 2,000 years ago, now I am the second Jesus and these are my credentials and this is how I prove that I am coming from God and all that and I'm giving you a new covenant, the third covenant or the fourth covenant or it doesn't matter, then it would change because it has been spoken from the divine consciousness. Otherwise, What has been spoken from the divine consciousness cannot be changed because people please. So, it cannot be changed. Like, take the things with uh, all the sexual uh, variants which exist today and so on, you know, the conflict which people have, that fundamentalistic religion goes against, I don't know what, sexual orientation or something... And man, this is fundamentalism and fanaticism and bigotry because those things were written 2,000 years ago. It doesn't matter. As long as the deal has not been clearly and openly updated with a man like Jesus who says, from now on, this is the new covenant. Like you, you, you take bread and consider it my body, and you take red wine and consider it my blood, and thus instituting the rite of communion. This is the new covenant. Now, you don't bring lamps to the altar, to the temple, and they slaughter the lamps and they burn them. It's finished. Now the new covenant is using this sacrament with bread and wine. But if Jesus wouldn't have explicitly required that and declared that, then it could not be changed. There are people who simply dislike 
the commandments of God. And they say, ah, if this wouldn't be there, maybe I would go along with it. I think I read in a novel of Japan that some samurai, they generally agreed with Christianity because it corresponds to many principles from Buddhist and from the Shinto spirituality. But there were two which were not mentioned there explicitly and which were in Christianity and these made Christianity unacceptable for them. One of them was thou shall not kill. How do you say you shall not kill for samurai who are men to do, who are killing machines. And the second was, of course, the one about sex, that you cannot have sex with another man's wife or you shall not fornicate or whatever it's called. The sexual culture was pretty free in Japan, in medieval Japan, and they could not accept. And they said if it was not for the second commandment and the seventh commandment or whatever numbers they had, you know, then we would embrace Christianity without problems. Like for them, the commandments were inconvenient. Tough luck. You cannot change the commandments. You cannot make a religion which in which you choose the commandment as it pleases your lifestyle, which many people do today. This so-called New Age spirituality, which is not a spirituality but an abomination, where people are mixing up everything with everything, and in the end they pick up a few things which they like, they have a hypocritical morality, and then this morality is actually feeding their ego. Even Pythagoras, who lived 500 years, three, three, four, five hundred years before Jesus, in his golden verses, where he speaks about the principles of initiation of his time, he says, you shall not break the bread in crumbs. Not like the bread is the Ten Commandments. You have to take the whole bread or not at all. Pieces of the bread and crumbs are not okay. People are trying to create a religion of their own preference. And their preference is dictated by their ego, by their desires, by their ignorance. You cannot do that. You have to take the yama and niyama as it is in yoga. You have to take the Ten Commandments as they exist in, in Judaism and in Christianity. You have to take the Four Noble Truths and the eight or nine things to be done which result from the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism. No, there are things which are materialized by the great spirits. They come from the immutable one. And those principles cannot be modified. Exactly as there is a law of karma, there is a law of gravitation, there are laws of electricity, and they come from the divine consciousness. It's the way Prakriti or Mother Nature is built. And the fact that one day one of these laws is causing you harm, you cannot ask for it to be like, we don't need a law of gravitation anymore because I fell and broke my leg. And it's very inconvenient for me. No, it doesn't work like that. There are some things which come from the principles which are above the manifestation. Those are the archetypes, the ideas on which the whole manifestation is based. In the same way, Jesus is saying there was the law and the prophets and they were valid until Jesus came together with John and they changed 
they kind of shifted the channel, like you shift the channel in a TV, and then it's another broadcasting. Until that time, you have to listen to the law and to the prophets. That he says, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Like people are not, and the forces of nature and whatever is happening in Prakriti, they are not allowed to change the divine laws. We are still subjected to the divine codes which exist from the beginning of mankind. They have been updated, but the last update is the last update. And thus, Jesus here explains very clearly that one should not attempt to change the principles unless you are like Shankaracharya or someone comparable and you have a special mandate from God to bring a new alliance, new terms of engagement. That's why even when there were a hundred thousand saints and enlightened beings, maybe ten gave terms of engagement, maybe twenty. Made like the founder of Sikhism, Guru Nanak, he being caught between the hammer and the anvil between Islam and Hinduism, he created something which was middle of the way, and he had an award from God to create that religion which exists until today. No. He was one of the very few people in history in the last 2,000 years who was allowed to give a law. Moses wrote the Quran according to his own statement in dictation, in divine dictation, and then he created a new covenant for his community and for whoever in the world was willing to live by those rules. That's why here Jesus is very radical and he says don't try to change the spiritual things because of your preferences because it doesn't work that way. And as an example of this, I suppose, he quotes this very disturbing thing about divorce and remarriage and so on, you know, and which has been held in Christianity as well because Jesus did not say that it should be changed. Jesus, for example, when a woman was to be stoned because she was considered to be adulterous, he said, actually, you shouldn't kill her because you have probably as many sins as she had. And she said the famous sentence that the one who has no sin, that one should cast the first stone. And there is no person without sin. Everybody must have done some shit in their life. You no, know, lied here and there, cheated, stolen performed adultery in their own turn, and other, and other, and other, and other things, you know? And therefore, he said, you are not more. That's too much. Moses may have said that. Now, at the time of Jesus, with Anahata, with love, with forgiveness, this has to be cancelled. It's an act of conscience that who can take the decision to stone a woman to death just because she had sex, you know? It's like, it's, it's not okay but, for example, in this law, he sticks to it. He quotes probably from the law and he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. Like Jesus is the first one who forbids divorce. And the church is condemned that it stuck to this until the 19-something, 
no, even uh, the famous Henry VIII or something broke apart from the Catholic Church and made his own church in England, no, his own illegitimate church in England, just because the Pope wouldn't give him, grant him the sixth divorce or something like this, you know. Like, not the first, not the second. Okay, you made a mistake, you marry someone else. There can be the Pope was having some special chosen people to whom he was giving uh, special treatment, special terms. Now, you can say that people who are kings or rulers of nations, they were subjected to very special stress and to very special neuroses and to very special pressure. And then a man like the Pope was saying, okay, I would deal in a slightly different way with this one. I have to cut them some slack in one way or another. No? But he wanted the sixth divorce. And if the Pope would have given him the sixth, he would have asked for the seventh and for the eighth, and God knows how much more. No, the guy was a wreck. And even the Pope stopped after a while. But And people generally, especially then in the Anglican Church, in the Protestant churches, in all the neo-Protestant churches, they uh, speak against this rule. But look, the rule is coming from Jesus, who quotes it from the law, and he sustains it. He says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. So the question is, what if I don't get along with my woman and doesn't work with me and her anymore? She's a terrible witch and she's poisoning my life. Or whatever else she is, you know, then Jesus says, you separate and you don't marry another woman. You go into a monastery, you practice celibacy, you try it once, it didn't work, then that's a clear signal for you to commit yourself to celibacy, and because life is not only about sex. I, I need to divorce this woman to take another one. Why? So I can fuck her. But what if you take another woman whom you don't fuck and you are just good friends? So the whole, the moot point, the actual crux of the matter is the fuck. Is the sex. That's why you want to divorce another woman and take another woman. She can be your friend for the rest of the life. And you can live in harmony in your family and love each other platonically. And Jesus does not forbid that. But if it's another marriage, you do another marriage to be legitimate to have sex. So if this sex would be simply saying, okay, I tried with a woman. We had two children. She was a terrible witch. I was a terrible jerk. It didn't work. Our sexual attraction disappeared. Then we didn't really have a marriage. We would have stayed together, but she was not even a good friend. She was a fiend. She was uh, an abomination, that woman. So I couldn't stay in the same house with her. I divorced her. I left her. No? And then, then I can have non-sexual relationships with other women. I can be the good friend of another woman and discuss philosophy watch the stars, cook food together, tell stories, feel love from my heart, but never French kisses, never blowjobs, never fingering, never sex, never nothing, never anal sex, never nothing of a sexual nature. See, that's the difficulty. This law was given to some manipuristic people who could suppress their sexual need 
for, at least they are supposed to, for a higher purpose. But humanity has fallen terribly on Svadhisthana, and already in the 17th century, 18th, 19th, 20th century, everybody talks against this, like it's such a cruel law. Nobody, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. Nobody wants it. No, but then why do you need to marry them? You know, if you are fuck buddies with the whole planet, then why do you need to marry? Why do you need to defile the institution of marriage? The institution of marriage was something which you, in which the two will try for life, for good and for worse, for health and for illness, for this and for that. Only death shall us part. Only death can separate a marriage, nothing else. No? And still, people want to do it, so it would give them the opportunity to have sexual relationships with other people. At least it's better in the 21st century, because people don't have this hypocrisy. They say, I don't even need to get married to have sexual relationships with other people. We do it, and that's it. We're fuck buddies, and that's it. But when referring to the institution of marriage, Jesus upholds this, and he says, no. If you marry another woman, you commit adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. They can say, yeah, but poor her, the guy divorced her and left her. That's the way it is. Remember, it was in India like this even until the 20th century. Still is probably in some villages. A woman that is divorced or loses her husband, her husband, she becomes a widow. She dresses in white, which is the color of the Buddhist nuns. She shaves her head. Nobody wants to be together with her. Of course, even deeper energetical and mystical reasons, but the social rule remains there. It's not for making any discrimination or not for punishing. It's trying to take humanity out of this Vadistanistic obsession that we have an institution of marriage so that we can have legitimate sex. No, go and have sex, whatever, you know, be a libertine, you know. But the institution of marriage was about something else, not to grant you permission to have sex. That's a complete misunderstanding of this. So, additional teachings, the law cannot be changed. John and Jesus have brought the new law, and as an example of it was this thing with the marriage and divorce, which Jesus is upholding. You know, he says, what, did I change anything about this? This is the law, and all these things are. But then he says, there were some things which I have changed, and those I have changed because I have a mission from God to change those things. And then he starts with the famous parable, a difficult one. It's one of the more obscure ones of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, like the luxury clothes of that day, and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. So he doesn't speak about Lazarus, the man who he took out of the grave. He speaks about a beggar called Lazarus. Either that referred to a concrete person, or it was a sort of uh, Walter or Oscar character, or it referred to somebody whom he knew concretely and who inspired him. So there was a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores 
and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, covered with sores because they were sleeping on the floor with very little cloth. They didn't have blankets and duvets and stuff like this. And sleeping on the rocks and sleeping on the ground. People were sometimes exactly like you see dogs having sores and so They were having some sores. So uh, that meant it's a symptom of the fact that he lived a real poor, deprived and miserable life in which even the clothes were at a minimal level. So there was a beggar caller and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, like a dog. He was eating the leftovers. What the rich man was throwing away, the beggar was eating and surviving, getting by. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The dog was considered an impure animal in various cultures, including this, because the dog is eating shit on the street and so on. So it's not a very nice animal in terms of ritual cleanliness. And the dogs were uh, you know, uh, licking his sores. Like the man was what you would call a low life, a homeless, living somewhere and uh, being at the most low life level that you can imagine. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. As you know, the Jews in the old culture, they were going into the bosom of Abraham, like Abraham the prophet had obtained a deal with God, the first of the covenants with God, and uh, before even Moses' time, the earliest covenant with God, and because of this, being on the right side of Abraham or being to the bosom of Abraham, like in the coat, in the warm place here at the chest of Abraham, was to be in paradise, to be in a good place. So this Lazarus, the soul of Lazarus, went to Abraham's side. So apparently to a good place. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Interesting story. So the rich man died and he went to hell. Now, if I would be a Marxist or a rich people's hater, I would say, uh, see, all rich people go to hell. It's a simplified story. Jesus doesn't tell all the elements there. He doesn't say that the rich man went to hell because he was rich, but probably because he had a very bad temperament. He was very selfish, arrogant, vanitous, and in his life he did many, many shitty things. It is not the wealth only indirectly, because the wealth tempted him and he fell for the temptation brought about by the wealth and he developed a very bad resonance, a very bad character. Not the wealth directly. Remember, there were money which Padre Pio handled to build his hospital. There were money which uh, uh, Swami Shivananda manipulated to build his ashram and university and this, and they did not go to hell because they were in contact with some wealth, because these were people who did not get corrupted psychologically and spiritually.
by that wealth. But fact is, Jesus wants to make another point, and he keeps the story short there. And the same says, uh, the rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he was in torment. Yeah. Have no doubt, most of the people who hate Jesus and the uprightness which comes from that, they will tell you that there are no demons, that there is no hell, that it's all just nonsense. It's up to you what you want to believe. Jesus speaks explicitly about demons, dark spirits, diabolic influences, and he speaks about hell. And he even says this rich anonymous man was in hell and he was tormented. He was actively suffering. Don't think that you go to hell and you find a quiet corner there and nothing happens. When you are in hell, you are in a program. You are subjected to a program. And he was in torment. And he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Abraham was up. So obviously the hell means low frequencies, low chakras, and Abraham is up compared to it. Normally, the law of the planes in metaphysics says that the low cannot see or understand the high. The high can always have a bird's view and see and understand the low. A person on Manipura Chakra can never understand or see the results of a person who has a big Anahata Chakra. But the person that has a big Anahata Chakra probably has been on Manipura in many previous lives and knows it very well together with its temptations, values and all the other things from there. So normally Abraham and Lazarus should have been able to see the rich man burning in hell or suffering in hell, but the man from hell should not have seen them. However, it was made possible in this story. Jesus doesn't say by whom, why, how. It was just a freak thing that the man who was in hell looked up. Hey, up, there are many things. Up, there is Brahma Loka. Up, there is Hiranya Loka. Up there is Shambhala. Up there are many, many things which are up there and of which the people who are in hell don't know more than of a lost paradise. Like I could have gone to paradise and I somehow missed that chance. It's more like a lesson to see what you have missed, to see what you do not have. It, if you want, it's more like a cruel teaser that you also see what you have lost. You cannot taste it, you cannot understand it, but you know it is good and you know you don't have it exactly as a teaser. And therefore this man, he saw Abraham's paradise with Lazarus in a good place. Lazarus was the beggar to whom he was giving crumbs. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. The rich man had a strong Manipura and his hell was a hell on Manipura. So his hell was manifesting as fire. And because of this, his hell was hot. So one of the things which he suffered constantly 
Imagine if that goes on for 200 years, what it means in detail for every moment. Yeah, He simply asked for a drop of water. He said at least Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and that one drop which clings to your finger to put it on his tongue because he is in agony because of the fire. Yeah? Imagine the suffering. Now he was praying. He was too arrogant to pray to Lazarus. Say, brother, I don't know how you came there. You are a beggar in my time. And now you are up there like with the bosses. You know, he was at least too, still too proud, too arrogant. But he prayed to Abraham. At least let's pray to the boss, you know, like I can honor Abraham. And he said he called him Father Abraham. Like he tried to plead with him, come and take this. And of course, it was kind of impossible because Abraham was not Jesus or something. To Abraham was a patriarch, but he had a limited authority. And in his authority, there didn't come the thing that he could cancel people's negative karma and that he could uh, burn people's negative karma and take people out of hell. If he would have asked the same thing to Jesus, Jesus forgave people who were with leprosy, blind, and others, and who therefore had a lifelong bad karma, and he could tread over it. But in the case of Abraham, Abraham did not feel that he had this latitude. And Abraham replied, son, he called him son. So he thought, you are in my flock. Son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. This is very, very distressing and it is very, very misleading because it shows like there is a contrast between this life and the next. A beggar who lives a miserable life is going to be happy in the afterlife and somebody who is having luxury and plenty is going to be condemned to pay. That's completely not true. It's a very, very simplistic and simplified way of seeing the reality because Buddha tells us clearly what matters is one's karma. What matters is one's deeds. What you did matter. So what is between the lines here in the answer of Abraham is this. Abraham says, son, in your lifetime you received your good things and because of these good things you behaved bad, violent, arrogantly, ugly, without compassion, without mercy. Maybe when you saw this Lazarus, you treated him like a dog and you kicked him and you spat on him and other things, which they did on Jesus as well. No. And this Lazarus received bad things, but he received bad things, but nobody tells us that Lazarus was a vile murderer. There are beggars who are ready to commit murder. There are people who live a low life, and those people are ready to do all sorts of abominations, simply because they say, I have fallen to the bottom, I cannot fall lower than this, I am already at the bottom, what could be worse? And then they are ready to compromise and you can buy them with a couple of silver coins and they are ready to do any abomination. But apparently this Lazarus 
he stayed humble. He was consuming his bitterness. He simply said, I am a low life. I am miserable. God is testing me. I probably deserve all this. What to do? I'm going to eat the leftovers from this man. I hope God will be kind to me. Forgive me sooner or later. Like he did not descend, Lazarus did not descend into infamy. So this is between the lines because he says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and you did a lot of shitty deeds while Lazarus received bad things and he did nothing bad. He cultivated humbleness, surrender and other such things. And therefore, then it is justified that after life the situation will be reversed. But otherwise, please remember that there can be people who have a good life because they have a good karma. They live a relatively good life, like they have food, they have clothes, they have house, they have, you know, they have whatever they need. Maybe not in luxury, but in a good life. And those people can practice a lot of spirituality. They can cultivate humbleness and love, unconditional love. They have aspiration, they have, and they are happy with their happy little oasis, like I have a relatively good life, not outrageously, not not filthy rich, not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And meanwhile, I'm doing all the spiritual things. No? And for such a person in the afterlife, they will not be burning in hell. They will not, I promise. That's a misunderstanding. And this simplification here is very painful because it makes you believe that whoever is well off now will be in hell after life and whoever is poor now is going to be in paradise with Abraham in the afterlife, which is absolutely no truth. There are some low-life beggars who go, who descend into levels of infamy and into levels of sin, which are unspeakable almost. And those people, they will go to hell. So they have been poor and miserable here, and then they will be more, more miserable as they go to hell. Therefore, think clearly about this, because yes, there can be powerful, wealthy other people who get spoiled and they weave a terrible future for themselves, but it's not always mathematically so that the good one, the happy one goes to hell and the poor one goes to paradise. It depends on how you react to this challenge. Because being rich is a challenge. Being poor is a challenge. And you can react beautifully and spiritually to this challenge or really, really bad. And therefore, he says, and then he tells him the fundamental things of metaphysics. So he says, now you got each one what you deserved, which in this happened, in this case, it's paradoxical because it's exactly the other way around. The one who was in comfort now burns in hell and the one who was a beggar has passed some important spiritual tests and now is in a good and loving place. And besides all this, besides the fact that you've got your karma, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed 
so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Who do you think has created this great chasm? God. It's the law of God. Between paradise to hell, there is a great chasm. It's the great wall of China, so that people cannot jump over the wall. You cannot escape from hell and go to paradise, and from paradise you would not go to hell. Occasionally, some people who are blessed with grace from God, siddhas, people of great prayer, they have been shown parts of hell as visitors. But on a regular basis, if your grandmother is with Abraham, she will not be shown things from hell. A little bit in some special case like this one is like Jesus pulls the curtain in his parable and they can see each other and talk to each other for one minute. But that's all. Remember, there is a great chasm has been fixed. It's fixed by God. It's decided. It's different realms. It's like you are living on different planets and you don't communicate between those planets so that those who want to go from here to you, like I would like to go and give you a drop of water. No, it cannot be. I can't do that. I cannot interfere with the laws from hell. Remember, Teresa of Avila was praying every night to take souls out of hell and she was sick and weak and in pain for 30, 40 years of her life. That means in the night she was doing this thing and in the day she was suffering like a dog with pain and agony. So did Padre Pio, so did many others. And therefore, I'm telling you these things like, yes, Teresa of Avila can cross that chasm through the power of prayer, but even she has to pay a toll. Like if you want to give a drop of water to that rich man, then tomorrow you have to have three hours pain in your chest. As if you had cancer in your lungs or God knows what, even if you don't have it. That's why in the case of these ultra-spiritual persons who are sick of different diseases, sometimes the doctors cannot find the cause. The doctors could not find the cause for Padre Pio's pains and illness, for Teresa of Avila's and for many, many others. The diseases in the case of people like Aurobindo and Shivananda and Yogananda, and they are mysterious. They are karmic and they don't have a physiological cause. They are simply because they disturb a lot some chasms in this universe. So he said, we even if we wanted to give you water, we could not because it's forbidden to us to go there, nor can anyone cross over from there to us, like escape from paradise and spend five minutes in the garden of Abraham with Lazarus. It's not possible. So when you see it, it's just to tease you, just to make you even more agonizing of how stupid you've been and how you fucked up your chance to live in paradise and how your deeds have paved your road to hell. He answered, a bit of a Jewish bargaining here. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. 
let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. A minimal compassion. Because everybody, when they die and they see what's coming to them, they say, ah, if I would have known. When Henrik VIII died and went to hell, then he said, what did I do? Why did I separate the Anglican Church from the Catholic Church? Oh my God, if I would have known. People always say that in the 25th hour, one minute too late, when they can't fix things anymore, then they say, ah, if I would have known. And that's why, of course, everybody's desire, think how many people have gone to hell just in the last 5,000 years of human history. No, Everybody who has died, they would have said, give me just two minutes to go to my brother, to my son, to my wife, to my friend, to let them know not to come my way. At least they should learn from my lesson. It's not allowed. That's what Buddha says. The cause of suffering is ignorance. We are kept in ignorance. We have to rely on other spiritual instruments, not on simple transmission of information. Somebody who is dead is coming and saying, Oh, ye sinners, I'm coming from hell for five minutes. I've been given a break. And I'm telling you, don't do what I did. Look what I did. What, look what consequences it had. Look this, look that. If one would say it, he would be considered crazy. If a hundred would say it, they would be considered mental patients. If a hundred million would have come and said it repeatedly and all the time, they then humanity would have been compelled to believe. To know. But I met people in my life who refused, after they did for a while, then they changed their mind and they refused to believe even in karma. They said karma is an invention of Buddha and of later Buddhist priests to keep the masses under their heel by scaring them with karma, threatening them with karma, and there is no karma. Such confused souls, when they go to hell because they did all the crazy shit, then they will say, oh my God, at least if I could tell to people how wrong I was. That channel of information is closed by decree of God so that they cannot come and tell you. Yeah, there have been sessions of spiritism. I have whole books which were drawn in England, in Switzerland, in France, in Italy, in spiritist circles all over the world where some mediums contacted with spirits after that and they told them exactly this, that if you could communicate after death, at least you would tell to the other people not to repeat your mistakes, not to do your mistakes, and that is forbidden. There are a hundred such books and people just say, ah, Spiritism. Can you believe in spiritism? Spiritism is a hoax. Everybody knows that spiritual spiritism was a hoax. About 90% of what happened in the 19th and 20th century, spiritism was a hoax, pathetic, and then there were great scientists like um, Sir William Crookes, Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer, Camille Flammarion, the astronomer, and the list would continue a lot. Oh, many, many others. 
uh, of different philosophical or scientific orientation, and their research is impeccable. And nevertheless, those books are forgotten, flushed down to the garbage, to down the toilet, and the people of today, although they have been told by mediums what spirits said from after death from the other world, they don't give them any credence. And it's like, I come on, man. You know, it's like you can't believe in this kind of thing. That's why we live in a world of ignorance. And he says, at least tell to my brothers not to do the mistakes which I did. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, like spiritism is not a religion. In the 19th century, they tried to make a religion, Alain Kardec and this kind of people. You know, there are many spiritist churches surviving, like little chapters, little groups, or even bigger in some countries, which survive from the teachings of spiritism. But it's not a religion. Remember that the Bhagavad Gita says it very clearly. In the moment when you communicate with the spirits of the dead, this is the most inferior form of spirit, the lowest, most inferior is not correct grammatically, is the lowest form of spirituality. And this is tamasic. It corresponds to the tamas guna. And therefore, Bhagavad Gita, the sattvic metaphysics, they don't advise that you should take your cues from the dead. Why? Because the dead are subjective, selfish, limited. They have their own karma to endure. They have their own problems. And now they become your teachers just because they are dead. Your teachers are Krishna, Buddha, or like he says here, the real teachers are Moses and the prophets. Why don't they listen to them? Like you don't need a dead spirit Lazarus to come and say I came with a like an ectoplasmic apparition in a spiritist seance I'm coming with a message from the rich man from the parable who tells you don't repeat his mistakes his path his his richness egoism was the wrong path and now he is in hell so repent change your ways and so on it was said by Abraham it was sent by Moses it was sent by the prophets it was sent even by John. You know, why does why didn't the family of the rich man listen to those? Funny. Those are discarded. How many times did Buddha, the Buddhist saints, Krishna, the Hindu saints, Jesus, the Christian saints, Moses and the prophets in Judaism, as well as the prophet Muhammad and the Islamic saints, not just to mention the five main religions, how often did they say, do this, don't do that, make straight the ways of God, repent, all this and all that. All the time. Nobody is listening. Now they are saying, let me go as a spirit, let Lazarus go. And why would they believe in Lazarus more than in uh, Moses and the prophets? And the proof is there. In the 19th and 20th century, there was a lot of spiritist research and a lot of laboratory experiments which have proven some very interesting things. If you read the scientific literature written on spiritism, you will see. No, you will see. It's amazing. No, some, some things have been shown very wonderfully. No, 
people did not believe in Moses, people did not believe in the prophets, people did not believe in Jesus, people did not believe in Teresa of Avila, and of course, people do not believe in spirits and the spirits as well. So here, this rich man in hell, he's just bubbling. He's just raving stupidly because what he's asking is not wise. You know, like, well, let Lazarus go. I understand I'm in hell. He has a good thought and he's smart. And maybe he's a bit humbled already. No, he says, then let Lazarus go and tell to my family what mistake have I done. No, but the mistake was already outlined by Moses and by the prophets. You don't need that Lazarus to go and perform a little miracle. So he's asking the wrong thing. And he says, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if it's some, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. That's not true. It has been tried in the Spiritist Revolution no, in, from the 19th, 20th century, and it did not. He said to him, Jesus quotes like Abraham answered to this rich man. It's an imaginary dialogue. It's a parable. It's an example. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I have seen on internet people who have been in a clinical death, the near-death experience, in a coma or more, and they were considered dead, and then they stayed there for 18 hours, and then they came back. And when they came back, they came back with an ultra-religious experience where they had seen the heaven and the hell, and they were telling to people, don't do this, I've seen it with my own eyes, and all that. Does anybody listen to them? Do you think anybody listened to them? Not even 1% of the people who saw those videos on YouTube. I think they are in every country, in every language, there are people who had this kind of things. People are not listening. People are dismissing it like it's madness. It's insanity. It's something, you know. This is how brainwashed we are and how little sensitivity we have to the religious truths. And a little bit more, we move to finally to the chapter 17. Jesus said to his disciples. Therefore, it's the same time, the same day, we don't know. It's another chapter, it's another story, and he speaks about some fundamental concepts. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. Why? Because either people are subjected to spiritual tests and then 50% pass those tests and 50% bounce or they botch those texts, tests and then they will sin, they will fall on the wrong side. So they are bound to come and also because people have a negative karma. You are inclined to violence. And then a new situation comes where violence is done to you because you have done violence in your previous lives. As somebody is coming to do new violence to you, which is the result of your karma from previous lives, all you can do 
is answer with even more violence and proclaim that this is legitimate defense and you had to do it and you saw it coming and blah, 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 and all that, you know, exactly as you see in the Godfather movies where there is violence versus violence versus, you know, it's all the time who is faster in killing the other that's supposed to prevail. So Jesus is a realist. He says things that cause people to sin are bound to come. Like you say, I wish that nobody will be tempted to sin. It's not possible. They will happen. If we would have a planet of people with clean karma, then it would happen less. But even there, some people would still be subjected to some spiritual tests because they are not yet perfect. They haven't yet reached perfection and they have to be tested on certain issues, on certain elements. And therefore, Jesus knows. He says, we cannot stop the fact that people will be tempted to sin. But he says, woe to that person through whom they come. Because sometimes they come naturally. I'm stumbling over a rock. I hit myself. Then I react like an idiot. I do. Who's guilty? Nobody. But then sometimes it comes through somebody. You know, like somebody did a crime while was drunk on alcohol and that drunkenness started from a friend who five years ago addicted him to alcohol. And he, Jesus says, woe to that person through whom this comes. Because sometimes there is a human agent and without knowing we are the agents, anybody can be the agent of the temptation to sin. You will do something which will make another person fall under a sin. And Jesus says, woe to those. Because basically, when you are the one who does that, you act like an arm of the devil. Because the devil is the one entrusted with testing people. The devil is the ultimate examiner. The demonic forces are the ones who try our light versus our darkness. And therefore, Jesus says very clearly, woe to that person. If you made yourself even involuntarily the agent of the devil, then you should repent. You should try to fix things. You should... You should stop immediately. Don't be. People say, hey, what? I'm doing whatever I can. They yes, but you are pushing that person to hell. Like one of the very bad sins listed in the Christian mysticism is not giving to people the payment which they have worked for. Somebody worked in my garden, doing gardening, worth 5000 but, and I'm saying, you know what, you are a loser, you didn't do it well, you didn't fuck off, just go, and I don't pay. That's a very big sin. It is put in the church together with murder and other comparable huge sins. Why? Because the person who thinks that they worked for me, even if they know that they cheated a little bit, but nevertheless they worked, 
they say, I gave you the time, I gave you the money, tonight I come with a gun and I shoot you, you bastard. I worked for you and you cut my money, you, you didn't give me the money. No? This is like you are the agent of a provocation. You are an agent of the demonic planes that you come and do that. So try to not do things like this to other human beings. He says, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. One of these little ones. He considered all these baboons, as I call them disrespectfully sometimes, he considered the pygmies of Kali Yuga, the little souls, he simply calls them one of these little ones. They are the sheep of Jesus. They are the flock of Jesus. Jesus says, so what? You know, they are, you have been a child. You have been a spiritual child once upon a time. And if people would have treated you like shit, you would have made maybe a lot of mistakes. You provoke a gorilla, you provoke a tiger, you provoke an animal, and then you are wondering why did the animal bite you or kill you or do something. You should not provoke the animal because the animal can do only what the animal can do. It's simple. He is one of the little ones, little souls. These are very small souls. They are not on the profoundness of Confucius or Socrates or... I don't know what other, you know, Emerson or, you know, other philosophers of this planet. And he says there will be coming temptation to sin, but you should not be there. You should run. You should not be part of this, because when you are part of this, you become the agent of the devil and there comes a negative spiritual karma to you because you have been the involuntary agent. Remember, even involuntary manslaughter is being punished in the codes of laws of today, not as much as murder in the first degree, deliberate murder, but there is still a punishment for involuntary manslaughter. Therefore, that involuntarily you give negative karma tests and make the little ones to sin and to fall, you basically have become an extension of the devil. You are working part-time for the hell by making people be tempted. Remember the prayer where Jesus says, and do not lead us into temptation. You also should not be part of that which leads other ones into temptation. Because then you are aligned with hell. And therefore, he says, it would have been better to throw him with a millstone around his neck, or like to drown, to be drowned. To be, it would have been better, better to be drowned than to be allowed to continue such an existence where you accumulate such a terrible karma. It's very, very explicit, very, very powerful. So watch yourselves. Jesus says, watch. Don't accept to be part of the process by which other people are tempted to sin. No? 
either you talk about people taking drugs, psychedelic substances, alcohol, tobacco, other and other things, by people being pushed into prostitution, people being pushed into uh, senseless fornication, people being pushed into satisfaction of all the base instincts, cruelty against animals, medical tests on animals, working on slaughterhouses and killing animals for people's greed, treating badly political prisoners, prisoners in penitentiaries and prisons, and other and other. There are many places where ugly things are happening in this world. And Jesus says, you should not be part of that. It would be better for you to drown with a millstone tied to your neck immediately than to continue for one minute that lifestyle. Therefore, he says, watch yourselves. People today are not watching themselves because they have very little purity left in their aura and because they don't believe in these metaphysical things and it means they believe that everything goes and it makes no difference. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So first of all, he says, if he sins, rebuke him. Don't, if you don't rebuke him, you actually allow him to continue sinning. And then he will say, why didn't you tell me that you think it was, he thought it was wrong? He's going to throw it on you. And spiritually, there is there a lack of the truthfulness of Tara. It's a lack of resonance with Tara that one does not speak this truth clearly, like Jesus. Jesus is fearlessly and totally speaking this truth without any compromise. But look how much he compensates afterwards. He says, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Of course, Jesus talks about sincere repentance because there is somebody who can read this paragraph and say, I, can, I, I found an excellent strategy against the dumb Christians because Jesus gave them this commandment and then he says it's enough to say, forgive me, I repent, I was so wrong and then do it again. But you forgot the other dictum, which is not a Jesus, like it's not the dictum of wisdom, which says, if you tricked me once, it's your fault. If you tricked me twice, it's my fault. Yeah. And therefore, um, here, Jesus, in another place, he says, be gentle as doves, but be wise as serpents. That means it doesn't work if the person is trying to play a game. If the person is trying to play a dirty game, he doesn't say that you should punish him, but then you can take the middle path where you simply isolate yourself. No. You did that, you said, sorry, I repent. You did it again, you said, sorry. You did it the third time, you said, sorry, I repent. And I already start seeing that you don't repent and you are not sorry 
and you are just playing a game and you are politically correct and giving me lip service. Therefore, I'm saying, you know what? I live in this house. You live on another continent. I don't want to see you again. I don't want to be with you. I don't because I don't want to play this game. I don't believe in your sincerity. I don't believe in your repentance. I don't believe in your apologies. It's going to happen again and I won't let it happen. If that's the case, that does not include the case that Jesus mentions here. The case that Jesus mentions here is that somebody botches it regularly. He exaggerates. He says seven times in a day and seven times he comes and apologizes and says, I repent. Can it be? Yes. A child is doing to you more blunders more than seven times per day. Every parent knows that the child now breaks something, now does something stupid, now says something wrong, now this, now that, and the parent has to forgive it, giving the right education to the child. There are human beings who are a little bit retarded or they have some problems and sometimes they are like children and they botch it, you try to help them, they are with you and they make mistakes Maybe not seven times in a day, but like three times, four times, maybe not exactly the same mistake, different. And every time they are really sincere and they say, really, it's not my day. I don't know what the fuck is happening to me. I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, it's like I'm, I'm on the brink of crying here. I don't want to do anything to upset you. And I'm, I'm just clumsy, clumsy as hell. I'm, I, I don't know. I'm like dizzy. I keep on doing stupid mistakes. Please, please, please. Forgive me, I repent deeply. Jesus says in such a case, when it's a sincere apology, you should accept it, even if it takes a toll on you. You are the greater man or the greater woman. You can take some punches. You can take some losses. God will give you more, will compensate for your patience, for your wisdom, and you should forgive so although Jesus condemns so clearly, he nevertheless says, if your brother is doing something wrong, tell him. But if he repents and so on, try to help him. Forgive him as much as possible. And I guess I will stop here. We are at the the fifth verse of the chapter 17, where the apostles are telling him, tell us something to increase our faith, give us something to increase our faith. Because some of the examples which Jesus gave, all these metaphysics, they are very complicated. And he says, watch yourself. Yeah, but there are so many things to watch. We live like in a jungle surrounded by temptations, sin, demons the promise of paradise and so many things high and low and you know the the apostles want a little bit of Ishvara Pranidhana they want a little bit of the aspiration to be able to keep up their spiritual effort this will come in my next I'm not saying that from now on I'll do satsangs only with the Gospel of Luke I definitely want to finish this Gospel of Luke to close this chapter from my satsangs here in Agama, but um, I will continue, maybe one week with this, one week with another theme, 
you can always send your things that you desire to hear about to uh, the administration of Agama. And in this way, I will choose some themes which are related to the present day things, maybe. And then I will also continue alternatively with the Gospel of Luke until we finish the chapter number 24, which is the last chapter in that Gospel. With this, we have finished for tonight. Thank you all for joining and having the patience to listen. These are complicated, convoluted, metaphysical teachings of Jesus, but still very uncompromising, very clear, very determined in the style to Jesus. With this, we have finished for now.